it's a joy to be here. Um, Brad often says when we'll go and speak places together that I taught him everything he knows about being a mission pastor. What he won't tell you is his first week on the job, I was very sick, was put in the hospital, was out of work for almost a year, and he learned how to be a mission pastor all by himself. <laughs> so by abandoning him, he learned the skills of being a mission pastor. So, uh, But I have learned a lot from him, specifically how to lay down my work, how to rest in Jesus, how to abide. Uh, Brad is always a model for what it means to truly love Jesus and to love other people. Uh, so it's a joy to, to work hand in hand with him. And I love this church. Many of my good friends are here. We have served in ministry together. We've known each other for a long time. So, uh, so thankful to be present. So today we're going to push pause on your normal sermon series because um, I didn't want to develop a new sermon. Uh, and I came back to a sermon that I've used in the past and thought about where Antioch was and how it could be a blessing. So we're going to be in Hebrews chapter 13. We're going to specifically talk about Hebrews 13, 1 through 3. But what I want us to do is, is read Hebrews 12, 28 through 13, 8 uh, for context. And then we'll dive into three verses specifically. So would you stand for the reading of God's word? Starting in chapter 12, verse 28. Hear the word of the Lord. Therefore, let us be grateful for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken. And thus, let us offer to God acceptable worship with reverence and awe, for our God is a consuming fire. Let brotherly love continue. Do not neglect to show hospitality to strangers, for thereby some have entertained angels unaware. Remember that those who are in prison, as though in prison with them, and those who are mistreated, since you also are in the body. Let marriage be held in high honor among all, And let the marriage bed be undefiled, for God will judge the sexually immoral, the adulterous. Keep your life free from the love of money, and be content with what you have. For as he said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. So we can confidently say, the Lord is my helper. I will not fear. What can man do to me? And then let's look at verse 16 as well. Do not neglect to do good and to share what you have, for such sacrifices are pleasing to the Lord. The Lord has spoken to us. Let us respond together. You may be seated. So it's a little, uh, a little strange, a little silly to go all the way to Hebrews 13 um, and not really know what's happening in Hebrews 1 through 12. But let me just give you a couple statements. Hebrews is a unique book. It's a unique book in the Old Testament. But it's a very, very important book. It lays some of the foundation for our faith. The the author of Hebrews is anonymous. I was actually in a a coffee shop on Friday, finishing up the sermon. Um, I had a good friend from Sojourn stop me. He's like, oh, what are you studying? He does college ministry at UofL. And I was like, oh, I'm studying Hebrews. He's like, oh, Hebrews is my favorite book. He got real excited. So I was like, okay, I'll take advantage of this. I was like, what what do you love about Hebrews? And he went into several different things. And he was like, oh, what's your take on the controversy? I was like, oh, what? What controversy do we have? He's like, well, who's the author of Hebrews? I was like, well, I feel like if the Lord wanted us to know who the author of Hebrews is, he probably would have told us. So what we have is a book that is anonymous. We don't celebrate the writer, but we celebrate who the book is about. And even though the author is anonymous, the purpose is very clear. The book of Hebrews repeats this truth over and over again, that Jesus is better than anything. Anything. He's better than angels. He's better than... Any Old Testament hero that you could read about, 
He is better than the law itself. The thing that Jews held up in high esteem, that they longed for, that they gave their life to fulfill, Jesus is better. The author reminds his Jewish readers, again, the book is named Hebrews, because it's written to the Hebrews. He reminds his Jewish readers that to return to the Old Testament law would be foolish. It's the anti-gospel. You receive the fulfillment of the law in Jesus, yet when time gets difficult and those things get hard, what do you do? You, you want to turn back to it, away from Jesus? This is exactly what happened uh, to the Hebrews when they were in the wilderness. The, the Red Sea is against them, and the, the Pharaoh's army is approaching. And what do they do? They're like, man, if we were just back in Egypt, we could be slaves again. How wonderful would that be? That's crazy, right? Well, that's what this author is writing. He's writing to these believers, and he's urging them, yes, you are enduring persecution. You are suffering deeply, but cling to Jesus. Do not abandon the faith. So we move all the way through those 12 chapters. That theme comes up over and over and over again. And then we get to chapter 13. As we often see in letters, the author starts wrapping up some of the main points. And he's giving instructions. In fact, the author is, this whole section, what he's writing about, is the outworking of actions of a life given to God. What does it look like to give your life to Jesus? And then what's the overflow of that life? Chapter 13 gives us a picture of that. The chapter impacts lots of short statements of instruction for us to consider and to apply. In fact, I can count at least 15 different things the author says. Do this, be this, remember this, reflect this. He says things like, verse 5, keep your life free from the love of money. Be satisfied with what you have. Remember your leaders and imitate their faith. Don't be led astray by various kinds of strange teaching. Don't neglect to do good and to share. Now, a lot of Hebrews are these like really thoughtful arguments that are unpacked over verses and even chapters. But in chapter 13, you'll get a statement. Remember, do, obey. Um, and, and in fact, we could focus in a sermon on each of those statements. But what I want to do is I want us to focus in on three of these commands, three of these instructions. And I want us to think about what does it look like to live a life that pleases the Lord the way we do that is we love those around us through sacrificial service. Moving out for our own loss so that others may gain. So I want to be clear from the start as we talk about what it means to live godly lives. Is that our, the root of our sacrificial service for others does not start with good intentions. Although you should have good intentions. It does not start with self-effort. Although you should put effort into serving others. But the way that we serve the church and the world around us must flow from our own relationship with God. As we love Jesus, as we press into him, as we depend upon him, the overflow of that life is service for others. All good and lasting service in God's kingdom is rooted in love, and it flows out of an abiding life with Jesus. And I don't know about you, but I often get this flipped, right? Often I will wake up in the morning and the first thing I think about is what I have to do for the day. Or maybe, if I'm honest, what I didn't do the previous day. Or what I did do that I'm living in shame over. But to, to wake up and be like, oh, all of this is on my plate. And I want to run to work. I want to run to set my hand on the plow and, and to dig and to grind and to work. Yet the call for me is to abide. To be with him. To enjoy him. And as I'm abiding, the overflow of that life will serve others. 
And we see this in verse 1. If you look back at verse 1, I love the way the New Living Translation phrases this verse. It says, keep on loving each other as brothers and sisters. There's an action here. You, you love your brothers and sisters. You keep on loving. You're moving forward. Verse 1 sets the stage for all of chapter 13. That our love for one another, rooted in Jesus, is what drives the way we live the Christian life. You cannot live the Christian life by just reading your Bible and sitting in your locked room and reflecting on his beauty. Yes, that is really important. Not the locked room part. But the Christian life is a both and. It's not an either or. We abide in Jesus and the overflow of of that is a life of sacrificial service. Both are necessary. The love written about here in, in, in Hebrews 13 and, and other places is more than mere emotion. It's a love that works itself out in concrete action. Love must be more than an emotional experience or it is not love at all. And if you are married, you know that, right? Love is both a choice, it's a covenant, and it's an emotion. But sometimes those emotional responses aren't present. I just want you to think about, um, if you're a parent today, think about the way you love your kids. So I want you to imagine, this may have happened to some of you last night. You're laying in bed, you're sleeping, deep sleep, and all of a sudden you hear screams coming from your kids' rooms. Mom! Dad! You wake up, and the first thing you do is you take a deep breath, and you start to reflect on the beauty of of your children. (laughs) And how lovely they are. And how thankful you are to be in their life. Is that what you do? No, you wake up, you jump out of bed, you probably smack into a wall or you stub your toe and you run into your kid's room. You scoop them up and you wipe away your tear, their tears and you love them in that moment. Why? Because love is moving out in concrete action. Yes, it is an, an adoring, it is being present with, but it's also a movement in sacrificial love. The same way that we live our brothers and sisters in Christ is seen in this way. An actual love. Love that will be worked out in practical ways. I, just, I want to give you a real life example. I was uh, hanging out with one of our pastors a couple weeks ago. We were having Thai food. I ha- highly recommend Thai food. And um, as we were talking, um, we were just talking about a church. And he was saying, man, I, I have just this encouraging story. We have this uh, couple who moved uh, to town. And he is in active military. He's at Fort Knox. And they have uh, several kids. Some are in school and some are at home with the wife. And what happened just a few weeks ago, I guess a few months ago now, is tragedy struck and the wife was diagnosed with breast cancer. I was like, what do you do in that moment? How do you manage? And specifically for a family like this who's bounced around quite a bit because of the military, they've only been attending our church for a few months. They don't know very many people. They don't know who to go to. But over the next few weeks, our pastors began to hear stories of members rallying around this family with practical acts of love. Another, member, another mother heard what was happening in the situation, so she reached out to the mom and said, hey, I will pick up your kids from school. They go to the same school as my kids, and I will drive them to your house and drop them off every day. I'll do that. Um, another person started a meal train so that there could be food present because the husband is working at Fort Knox and, and can't get home in time. Other members uh, went with this young mom and sat with her during chemo treatments, not providing any answers, but just being present. Again, they've been here for just a few months. But the most amazing thing I heard in that moment is that this wasn't an organized activity. There wasn't a Facebook call to go out and like, hey, sign up for these ways to serve. 
just every ordinary members heard what was happening and thought, how does my life intersect with the hurting in this family? And I'm going to let that life cross. I'm going to jump in and serve where I can. This is a picture of the love we see in Hebrews chapter 13. And I'm sure you could testify to love you've experienced in this place as well. A brokenness of hurt and the church to rally around one another. Love worked out in concrete action is a Christian kind of love. It's a love that perseveres. It's a love that keeps on going. Why? How can a group of misfits, sorry, a group of broken people rally around one another in these situations? It's because the love that we experience among one another is a love that we have seen on the cross. You see, Jesus, he is both our model and our means of love. We experience the depth of love because of the cross, but he is our model of displaying it to one another. His love for us was more than sentimental feeling. His love for us drove us, drove him to take on flesh, to live in poverty among us, to suffer in this life, and ultimately to die the death that we deserve, that you and I deserve. The love that, that flows from the cross is the love that can only be displayed in action. It cannot hold itself in. It must relief, it release itself in movement toward others. If you want to understand how to love your brothers and sisters in Jesus, then look to the cross. Look and see a love lived out in pain, lived out in sacrifice, lived out in relentless pursuit of another person. This kind of love that flows from the cross is a love that asks nothing, but it gives everything. Listen, friends, that is an impossible kind of love. How do we give in a way that is not reciprocal? It's very difficult. But we have a model of that in the cross. The love of the cross is the very love that changed our lives. And the gospel that we receive through the cross enables us to move out to others with that same kind of love. We affect change in others as we sacrificially serve them and we point to Jesus. The love of the cross is the frame and fuel for our sacrificial love for others. I love how 1 John 4 Starting verse 9 puts it. God's love was revealed among us in this way. God sent his one and only son into the world so that we might live through him. Love consists in this. Not that we love God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the atoning sacrifice for our sins. Dear friends, if God loves us in this way, then we can love others as well. Is that an encouraging word? Because we have experienced the depth of love that we, we can't even articulate. We'll literally spend all of eternity trying to understand and worship God because of. Because we are experiencing that in our day-to-day lives. Then we can serve others with that same kind of sacrificial love. Because the power doesn't come from self-effort. It comes from something much, much deeper. But what does this look like? How does this look like in, in our everyday lives? I can, let me give you just two ways this sacrificial love plays out. Number one. We can love others in concrete action when we open our lives and our homes to others in hospitality. Verse 2 says, Don't neglect to show hospitality, for by doing this, some have welcomed angels as guests without knowing it. One clear way that we love others is with generous hospitality. But what is hospitality? Hospitality is the opening of our lives and our homes in a way that provides refreshment to others. So probably when I say hospitality, you have something in mind. Okay, I am from uh, the rural south, so hospitality means casseroles that are delivered to people, right? Or it might mean 
opening your home uh, Sunday afternoon for a potluck. You know, those stereotype things are very true. In your context, hospitality may look uh, like a different thing. But let me be clear. Hospitality is not entertainment. It's not fellowship. It's not simply the gathering of friends. Hospitality is the act of opening our doors. It's welcoming others in. It's sharing what we have. And it's expecting nothing in return. My wife is wonderful at hospitality. She will disagree with that. Um, But there was a point in our marriage, she was like, you know what? We can have people over, but I'm, I'm not necessarily going to clean up. We clean up a little bit. Um, we're just going to have soup. I'll make double recipe of soup, and we'll just use our normal dishes. We'll just offer what we have. And to me, that was a, a model and a picture. You know, I think that's what hospitality is. What has God given to us, and how can we share that with others? We don't have to put our best foot forward. We can invite people into the life that we have. Hospitality allows us to see that that our, the own gifts we've been given are to share, they're not possessions to protect. Hospitality was an important practice in the early church. If you read Acts chapter 2, you see that, this like sharing of so many things. Every Christian was expected to steward what they owned for the greater good of the community. Often missionaries, evangelists, and other Christians would travel from place to place. Again, if you remember the world, right, there was this Roman road system, there was a common language. People were also often moving from one city to the next. And as the church expanded, um, people opened their homes. Hotels back then were often seedy places that you wouldn't want to go to. So a a Christian would hear of a a traveler or a missionary or an evangelist and open their home. Now, here's the deal. They didn't know who they were, right? Someone in the church is like, oh, uh, John, the uh, disciple John is coming through. Who can open their home? And someone's like, I'll open my home. Well, who will feed them? I'll feed them. What do we have to offer? What do we have to share? And for Christians in the first century, to follow Jesus meant sharing what you had with, with others, even those you didn't know. And that same expectation of generous hospitality has been given to us as well. I remember in our, my family group or my community group at my church, uh, there was a, a young single lady who had kind of a beater car, just kind of keeping it on the road. She got in an accident, and the person had driven away. She didn't have enough insurance to take care of it. So basically, she had this total car. She had to get to work. I think it was like $2,500 to fix her car. And we were just praying for her. Well, the next thing I know, someone else in community group wrote a check for the whole amount. Right? She didn't ask us. She shared a need. She was vulnerable in community. And someone moved toward that need. And that's probably been eight years ago, but it's just stuck with me. I, I saw someone who had the gift of financial wealth and someone who had a desperate need and the sharing of resources for the glory of God's kingdom. We see this in Romans 12, verse 13. When God's people are in need, be ready to help them. Always be eager to practice hospitality. But hospitality is is not simply just having friends over, although you should have friends over. It's more than that. It's stepping into the real lives and real needs of people around us. It means that we welcome in um, a close friend, but more often than that, it means that we're inviting in people we don't know very well. Sometimes it even means inviting in a stranger. Yes! You heard me right, inviting in a stranger. Now, you should have wisdom about that, right? There was a young man in our church, and he, man, loved Jesus, living on mission. And then he was like, oh, yeah, we have a homeless man living on our couch. I was like, okay, do you know him? He's like, no, I just met him on the street and invited him in. I'm like, okay, we need to use some discernment here. (laughs) But 
hit that, that group of men were able to invest in that dude, and it was a beautiful picture of hospitality. But what does it mean for us? What does it mean for us to experience this kind of hospitality? To open our home to someone that we barely know so that we can experience the beauty of the gospel working out. Through my years at, at, as a pastor, I've seen Christians and church leaders open their home over and over again. I remember going to our lead pastor's home, and I went downstairs uh, to the basement where our kids were watching a show to check on them, and I heard something over in the corner. I was like, what is that? And I walk over, and there's a young lady, and she has this little bedroom set up. And I go upstairs, and I'm like, hey, Pastor Javon, what's going on? I was like, oh, yeah, she's from our old church. She needed a place to stay, so we gave her home. Just over and over again, watching people offering what they have. It's a beautiful thing. And I'm, I'm sure you've experienced that here at Antioch as well. Ordinary Christians, people opening their lives and their homes to people in need. And you see here in Hebrews 13, the author says that we should experience and show this same kind of generous hospitality. When we do it, the scriptures say we may even entertain angels. Now, I know you get to that point, you're like, whoa, that doesn't match with like the way I live life or, or my worldview. But this is what the Bible says, so we're going to stick with it. It's a hard thing to grasp. It's a crazy thought that this could be possible, but it is possible. And what the author is referring back to is Genesis 18. Genesis 18, we see Abraham was showing hospitality to travelers who were headed to Sodom and Gomorrah. Now you're familiar with this. It doesn't turn out well for Sodom and Gomorrah. But these travelers are on their way. Abraham sees them. It says he runs to them. He washes their feet. He serves them the best meal he has, and he provides a place of rest. And in so doing, he shows hospitality to angels and to the Lord himself. So when the author of Hebrews is writing this, he's saying, hey guys, when you meet the needs of people, even people you don't know, you may be doing that to, to an angel himself. Remember back to Genesis 18, this beautiful picture? But let me tell you something even wilder, even crazier than that, that when we serve the marginalized, when we open our homes and lives to the needy, we are actually showing hospitality to the very person of Jesus. Matthew 25. For I was hungry and you fed me. I was thirsty and you gave me a drink. I was a stranger and you invited me into your home. I was naked and you gave me clothing. I was sick and you cared for me. I was in prison and you visited me. Then these righteous ones will reply, Lord, when did we ever see you hungry or feed you? Or thirsty and give you something to drink? Or a stranger and show you hospitality? Or naked and give you clothing? When did we ever see you sick or in prison and visit you? And the king will say, I tell you the truth. When you did this to the one of the least of these my brothers and sisters, you were doing it to me. When we move to the broken and to the needy, when we open our homes and lives to people who need our presence, we are doing that to the very person of Jesus. Hear me, this kind of beautiful hospitality is not just for those in the church. Hospitality can and should also be an essential way that we live on mission. We declare the difference in the beauty of the gospel. I love the way Tim Chester puts it in his book, Meals with Jesus. Jesus didn't run projects, establish ministries, create programs, or put on events. He ate meals. If you routinely share meals and have a passion for Jesus, then you'll be doing mission. It's not that meals save people. People are saved through the gospel gospel message. But meals will create natural opportunities to share that context. Share that message in a context that resonates powerfully with what you're saying. Hospitality has always been integral to the story of God's people. 
If you look at the, the ministry of Jesus, what you see is he is often entering in people's homes, both righteous, right? The religious leaders, the Pharisees, and the broken and the marginalized. He's entering in homes of both, and he's sharing meals. And often some of the most beautiful teachings of Jesus are around a meal. And the same is true for us. If you share a, a cup of coffee or a wonderful meal with someone, often the barriers that they put up in life will come down. Don't believe me? Try it. Invite a neighbor in. Believer or unbeliever, just pour into their life. Ask good questions. Listen well. And what you'll see is that meal provides an opportunity for ministry. So if you're struggling to share your faith, if you're struggling to move toward others, learn how to cook a good meal or an average meal or a bad meal and invite someone in and watch what the Lord does. You see, for the life of the church, hospitality has been a way that we love one another and a way we welcome in the lost. Hospitality shows us, it puts on display the power and outworking of love that only comes through a life lived with Jesus. I think gospel ministry, missions, global missions, local missions, is a both-and reality. Here's what I mean. It's both declaration and it's demonstration. It's declaring the gospel and then demonstrating what the gospel does in our lives. Okay? It's a dichotomy that is never meant to happen. They go together. They've always gone together. Look at the life of Jesus. He met the needs of the marginalized and the broken as he declared the gospel with power. Call people to repentance and to the kingdom. I love the way Rosaria Butterfield puts it in her book on hospitality. She says, Those who live out radical, ordinary hospitality see their homes not as theirs at all, but as God's gift to use for the furtherance of his kingdom. They open doors they seek out the underprivileged. They know that the gospel comes with a house key. Um, in my previous job, I had a chance to be with lots and lots of different churches. I was with a church out in uh, Berkeley, California. Uh, it's called Grace Church, primarily a Korean church. And they do college ministry, and they planted churches all over the country. But they live kind of a radical life. They, the, their goal is to live like an Acts 2 type of church. But I remember sitting with uh, a small group leader who's doing ministry with believers and unbelievers at the University of Berkeley. And um, just having this conversation, he's like, oh yeah, everybody in our house, everybody in our community group has a key to my house. And I had a, a really nice sports car because I worked for a tech firm, but I sold it and I bought a minivan so that I could transport people around as needed. And I was like, I'm sorry, what did you, how old are you? He's like, I'm 26. I'm like, okay. <laughs> it's this radical understanding that the gospel comes with a house key be it real or figurative, that what we have is not ours to possess, but it's ours to share. That we live in a kingdom and we, we share that with others. That for most of us, our salvation stories have been less about logic and reason and they've been more about trusting and belonging. Well, here, bear with me for a second. You're like, this dude's going off the rails here. What I mean is that sadly, we have boiled down evangelism to proclamation without presence Declaring truth without sharing our lives. This dichotomy is destructive. Let's once again embrace the holistic gospel and a holistic world. Live from a holistic life. As we extend the gospel, may we extend our lives as well. Yes, we declare the gospel, but the gospel finds its best soil for growth around a dinner table or sitting with someone who suffers. I've experienced this kind of shared life through the stories of baptism. I'm sure you have here. Baptism is a beautiful thing, that we get an outward sign given to us by Jesus 
uh, of something that's happened inwardly in some, in, inside someone's life. I remember talking to my kids, and they see baptism, like, what is it? Help me understand. When the person goes under the water, that burial, they're buried in Christ, and they're risen again, that's resurrected in the power of Jesus. And I've had the chance to hear, probably I see a hundred different baptisms just through being in churches and, and leading churches. It's this beautiful testimony over and over and over again. I get just chills thinking about it. But I've noticed a common pattern among many who get baptized. I'd say most adults who get baptized. And that is that they often meet Jesus in community. They often meet Jesus in community. The person being baptized is invited into a, a family group or they were invited into someone's home to share a meal or another person was destitute and down in their luck and a Christian invited them in and gave them a place to belong. And it was that act of love and service that allowed them to hear the gospel and to be changed. If we want to be people that make Jesus known far and wide, then we must be a people that share our lives with others. I didn't say share it with safe people or known people or people who can reciprocate friendship. I said messed up, broken, and frail people. If you've been in ministry long enough or if you follow Jesus long enough, people will disappoint you over and over again. But listen, you're not serving for the sake of people. You're not serving for the benefit of deep relationships, although you need deep relationships. You are serving for the sake of Jesus. And, and sometimes, oftentimes, that is painful. Yet in that abiding life with Jesus, he will meet you in beautiful ways. So, that leads us to a question when you think about hospitality. What could hospitality look like in your life? Because this is not just a church-wide conversation. This is a family conversation, individual conversation you need to have with yourself. Maybe it's inviting a neighbor to share a meal. Just opening your table, creating a habit of sharing meals with others. I think a question you could ask yourself, kind of a diagnostic question, how many people could describe the inside of your home? If you're like, man, lots of people, praise God, means you're opening your home. If you're like, nobody knows the inside of my home. Well, let's crack that door a little bit, invite somebody in. Or maybe for you, it's allowing someone in need to sleep on your couch or to stay in a spare room for a season to provide a, a place of safety and a shelter for a Christian who needs a place to stay. Or maybe for you, it's serving an adopted and foster family or a family you can see on a Sunday, man, I think they could use help. You know what? Instead of like being awkward, I don't know what to say, just jump in and serve. Just jump in and serve. Don't try to figure out the right place. Mow a lawn, do some chores, take someone out for coffee, provide a listening ear. Or maybe for you, it's creating a regular rhythm of having college students, international students, refugees into your home, sharing a meal, having them over for holidays, all kinds of things. You know your life rhythm. You know what hospitality is. How can hospitality and sacrifice intersect with the normal rhythms of your life? As you think about this call to show generous, sacrificial hospitality in your life, what's your next step? So I didn't ask permission to do this, but I would love this week in your family groups to ask this question. What's one practical step that I can take to grow in generous hospitality? What does it look like for me? Hospitality is a wonderful way for us to live out what we believe about the gospel. It's a way for us to love the church and invite non-Christians into our lives. Remember, we go back. What does it mean to, to have brotherly love, to continue loving? Well, we open our homes and our lives. But there's another way to do that, another way to apply what, what this love, this brotherly love looks like, and it's 
It's seen in this concrete action when we remember those who suffered. Verse 3. Remember those in prison as if you were there yourselves. Remember also those being mistreated as you felt their pain in your own bodies. Here's the deal. Suffering and persecution are realities of the Christian faith. Right? Philippians 1.29. There's the, the promise from Paul, the gift of salvation and suffering. Yet we live in this weird time in the church, specifically the, the Western church, the American church, where we're experiencing a time of peace. Now you may say, hey, it's not peaceful. It's true. There's cultural opposition. There's spiritual warfare. But what I'm saying is for most Christians, for most of history, physical suffering and persecution have been daily realities. The scriptures talk about this. Jesus said himself, Matthew 5, Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness, for the kingdom of heaven is theirs. You are blessed when they insult you and persecute you and falsely say every kind of evil against you because of me. Be glad and rejoice because your reward is great in heaven. When you take the the themes woven through scripture, there's lots of them. But one of those themes is that persecution is normal. Suffering is normal. To follow Jesus is to take up a cross. Here in verse 3, the author of Hebrews tells us to remember. That's a beautiful phrase. It pops up quite a few times in the Old Testament and the New Testament. This to remember. This is more than just a thinking back on the past. We are called to have compassion that leads to action. To remember, it, it draws up emotion. It draws up something inside of us. This kind of remembering is called empathy. You could call it empathy. Look back at verse, the, the verse again. Remember as if you were in prison yourself. Right? This, this, this empathy. Okay, my brothers and sisters are in chains. They're suffering. They're losing families. What, what would it be like if I myself were in that position? We're experiencing empathy for our brothers and sisters who suffer. Or remember as if you felt their pain in your own bodies. What a descriptive passage. The physical pain that our, our brothers and sisters experience. What if we experienced that physical pain? The command to recall or to remember forces us to actually align with and experience the pain of those who s- suffer for their faith. Here's the thing. If we are part of the church, that church is local and it's global. So if we are a part of a global church, that means we have to care about and align ourselves with people who live very different lives, who have very different stories, and much of those stories are painful. When it comes to the suffering church, did you know that more than 70 million Christians have been killed for their faith in the last 2,000 years? 70 million. More than half of that number has taken place in the last 120 years. So as the population increases, right, we're at 7 billion people now, so does that number of people who are martyred and suffer for their faith. Just this month, in February, an estimated 772 people will suffer violence for their faith, and over 200 church buildings will be burned down and destroyed. Open Doors is a a ministry that serves the persecuted church. They say that one in seven global Christians experiences some level of persecution for their faith. One in seven. So you can just look around this room. One out of seven, if you guys represented the global church, would be kicked out of your home, would lose your job, would experience physical beatings. All of these things are happening to our brothers and sisters. And these stats can and should be shocking. The church as a whole is a suffering church, and we must move toward it with concrete action to 
experience empathy for our brothers and sisters. We must grow in reaching out and serving and being aligned with them. But how can we best remember? How can we best experience this with those who suffer? I want to give you two suggestions. Number one, we can stand with those who are experiencing persecution. Whether or not you experience physical suffering or imprisonment for your faith, you can actively engage in the suffering of others. We can remember those by actively learning, reading, and advocating. There's documentaries, there's videos, there's ministries that will give you a a broader picture. There's ways to give you resources. You can write letters to to governments and to, to nonprofits that are seeking to advocate for those who suffer. A a tangible way you can do that, a practical way you can do that, is by going to opendoors.com. I gave you a a picture here. This is from Open Doors. Every year they publish a world watch list with the 50 top persecuted countries in the world. Um, It's interactive. You can go and see actual prayer requests. So you can go and know how best to pray. Uh, There's also resources and prayer booklets. So although this passage, Hebrews 13, is specifically addressing standing with those who suffer, I think it can also apply for sitting with those who experience pain. And as a church, big church, local church, we've experienced our share of suffering. My guess is you've lost friends too early. You've battled diseases with those that you go to church with. And you've experienced attacks from the enemy over and over again. I believe that a mark of a healthy church is a church that suffers well with its members. Not, not that a, a church without suffering, but when you do suffer, how do you respond to one another? That's a mark of a healthy church. If you move toward one another. A church that doesn't seem to try to provide all the answers or doesn't uh, try to fix people's problems, but they pull up a chair, they hold a hand, and they weep with those who weep. Friends, the best way that you can love those who suffer is to simply show up, to be present. A great application of this sermon for you is to practice suffering with others. When tragedy strikes, there's something inside of, for many of us, that wants to shriek back. I don't know what to say. I don't know what to do. I'm just not going to do anything. Instead, our response should be to push in. Even we don't know what to do. Here's the deal. Those who suffer don't know what they need, and that's okay. We, we push in and we seek to be present. We show up, we grab a seat, and we're present with those who hurt. I mentioned earlier, like, uh, Brad stepped into my role when I was sick. I had lots of people come to the hospital. I was there for several months. And most of them didn't know what to do. I was their pastor. It was like this strange, like, what do I say? What do I do? I had this one guy in the church. He was a school teacher. He would take his lunch every day. He would come to the hospital. He would sit in the chair beside me. And half the time, we didn't talk. Sometimes he took a nap with me. I was like, I'm going to take a nap. He's like, I think we'll take a nap too. We talked about football. We talked about sports. We, and then sometimes we talked about hard things. But it's been 10 years, and I still remember vividly the love I experienced with his presence. I remember nothing he said, nothing, but I remember his presence. That, that real presence, that empathy for the church is significant. Whether it's the church here or it's the suffering church overseas, Your presence matters. It does. So as we think about what it means to live a life that pleases the Lord, a a life that opens our homes and life in hospitality, or we move with empathy and action toward those who suffer, what does it look like for us? And then how is it possible? 
How do we do these things, right? I just gave you three of 15 different things in one book of the Bible. You read the whole book, you're like, I just can't do this. The Christian life's too hard. Yes, it is. (laughs) It's too hard. And that's the point. It's too hard. We can't do it in our own strength. I remember talking uh, to many people over the years about the different world religions, right? And there's, there's lots of differences. But one of the differences is these world religions have been created because people want control. They want a checklist. Hey, you do these five things, and you're good with Allah. Hey, you go to this temple, and you pray on these festivals, and you're good uh, with, with the Hindu gods, right? You meditate, you clear your mind, you do it for like 400 consecutive lifetimes, and you might experience nirvana. That one's, woof, it's a lot to take in. But for a Christian, it's like, hey, in my brokenness, I'm going to step in in faithfulness, and I'm going to cling to Jesus. Well, what else do you have to do? That's all I got to do. What if I mess up? You will mess up. Amen. But you know what? That's hard. It's like, just tell me what to do. Just cling to Jesus. No, no, no. Give me like a checklist. There's no checklist. We step out in faithfulness. We offer all that we have to Jesus and to our brothers. We cling to Jesus. And we are assured that for all of eternity, we get to sit at his feet. Not just at his feet, we get to be with one another. Hebrews, the, uh, the author of Hebrews gives us a beautiful image of how we can live the Christian life. Chapter 12, verse 28. Therefore, since we are receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken, let us be thankful. By it, we may serve God acceptably with reverence and awe, for our God is a consuming fire. You ever think about God that way? Our God is a consuming fire. We can live lives of faith, lives of love and action in the midst of chaos because our God is a consuming fire and his kingdom cannot and it will not be shaken. Listen, your life may be shaking. My life is often shaking. But when I wake up in the morning and I want to run to work, or I want to run to action, or I want to run to control, Instead, I need to fall at the feet of Jesus and say, Jesus, my world is shaking. Everything is shaking. I have so little to offer, but your, your world is not shaking. Your kingdom is not shaking, and I belong to that. All that we have, we fall at the feet of Jesus, and we cling to him. When your loved ones pass away too early, and your career plans come crashing down, when loneliness is crushing in on you, You can cling to the truth that your God is a consuming fire. He is with you, and his kingdom cannot be stopped. And friends, we can live this faith and seek to love one another in this world around us, to seek to have practical love out in action toward others. We can live our lives of sacrificial faith, and when we seek to be faithful with what little we have, it brings pleasure and joy to the Lord. And one physical way he has given us a a symbol or a sign of his love for us is in communion. We talked about baptism, right? That you're going under the water and you're coming out this beautiful sign. Communion is the other sign he has given to us. On the night that he was betrayed, he sat with his disciples. I actually just read this passage in my devotion this morning. His disciples are all around him. And he says, one of you will betray me. Is it I, Lord? Is it I, Lord? And then Jesus is like, is it I? And Jesus is like, yeah, it's going to be you. That's my paraphrase of it. It's this like powerful moment, right? Where the tables are turned, the story's changed. And in that moment where Jesus is about to be stabbed in the back by the men that he loves the most, 
he looks down and he, he grabs a piece of bread. And he says, friends, this is my body broken for you. Broken so you can experience the love. Even though you'll abandon me, even though in just a few moments I'll be standing all alone, my body is broken for you. And in the same way, he took a cup and he said, this is my blood shed for you. As often as you eat this bread and as you drink this wine, remember me as I return. And friends, this meal is given to believers to be reminded of his love for us. So if you're a Christian today, we want to ask you to come. You'll take off a piece of the bread and you'll, you'll dip it uh, in the wine or juice. And you'll be reminded of the love that you've experienced in him. So take time before you come to meditate on the beauty of the cross that you've experienced in your life. But if you're not a Christian here, or you don't know if you're a Christian, let me invite you. The gospel is for you right now, in this moment. You don't have to wait. We ask that you not take communion now, but instead take Jesus. Receive Jesus. Grab one of the pastors afterwards and learn what it means to follow Jesus. And the next week, you can take communion with us. Let's pray. Father, we stop in this moment as we stand before the elements as we see a physical picture of your love for us, that same love we experience in our everyday life, and that same love we're called to give out from the overflow of that life. But I pray um, right now for people who are going to take communion, but I pray that if there are people here who feel burdened by shame or guilt or fear, things they haven't done or have done, but I pray that you will bring forgiveness Bring your love. Let them be restored. Lord, may we see how our lives intersect with the world around us and live lives of sacrifice. It's in your name I pray. Amen.